Hello, film-loving world. My name is John Barber, and I'm your host for Fixed in Post, the Rabbit Room podcast about all things movies. Not only do we talk about the movies we love, but we also discuss how we'd fix their problems if someone gave us the editing suite for a few hours. This time on Fixed in Post, we tackle a movie that's close to the hearts of everyone in the Rabbit Room. Special thanks go out to Andrew Osinga for our theme music. Let's get to it. All right, everybody. Welcome to Fixed in Post, the Rabbit Room podcast about all things movies. I'm joined, as usual, by the executive director of the Rabbit Room, Pete Peterson. Say hi, Pete. Hello, hello. If you know anything about the Rabbit Room, you know that we're big fans of a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien. He's written some of our favorite stories. We talk about him all the time, and in fact... He's okay. Yeah, he's all right, I guess. The ver- our very name, The Rabbit Room, comes from the place where Tolkien hatched some of those stories. So when we found out that a biopic of Tolkien was coming out, we wanted to make sure and go see that. And so we're going to talk about the film Tolkien today. And by the way, before we get into that, I think, according to the film, I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Is that right, Pete? Tolkien. Tolkien. Right. So I will try and probably fail to say I will it. fail. Tolkien the rest of the episode. But before uh, before we get to Tolkien, uh, I wanted to just like introduce a new segment on Fixed and Post where we just take a moment to talk about the things that we're watching uh, currently. Maybe it's a good TV show or some films that we've been watching. Um, so what about you, Pete? What have you been watching lately that's really good? Man, I am hook, line, and sinker into Chernobyl. It's a new uh, HBO miniseries about the nuclear catastrophe at Chernobyl. It was one of those things where, you know, it's kind of part of the public consciousness. You know, I know that it happened. You know, I was like in middle or high school when it happened. So it's not, you know, ancient history and it's something that's certainly on my radar, but I had no idea what really happened. And so this miniseries is just incredibly well done. You know, I've even like when an episode gets over, I go to Wikipedia and look up the facts and everything has been totally factual so far. So, you know, it's not bringing a whole lot of Hollywood fantasy to what happened. It's very grounded on, you know, the details. And it is absolutely terrifying. And just to give you a little example of what I mean, like I had no idea that, and you know, this is, I'm not spoiling anything. This is revealed in the show, but there's a point where we learn that if the scientists can't figure out how to solve a certain problem within 48 hours, then there will be a new explosion that will contaminate most of Europe and render it uninhabitable, maybe for 20,000 years. And like, if that's not terrifying, I don't know what is. And the whole show is just kind of about this slow realization that like mankind just a few years ago, literally broke a piece of the world that we can't use anymore. And it's just staggeringly uh, effective. Uh, Yeah. I'm watching Chernobyl as well. And, uh, it's really sobering to see the stakes that are in play with this real life event. Like the world could have gone a very, very different way. Yeah. <laughs> and history could have taken a much bigger turn. Fortunately, we kind of know what happens. You know, we didn't all yeah. die in a uh, uranium haze or whatever, but which is good. But it this unfolds like the best possible suspense film. Oh, yeah. And the acting is so first rate and the direction is wonderful and it's um, difficult to watch, not for not for like adult content reasons, but uh, it's just so harrowing. 
Yeah. My wife made a great point when we were watching it. it it's so like a horror film sometimes. Yep. And the monster is radiation. And it's yeah. this thing that nobody can see. And it's after them. And it's killing them. And you're like, no, 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 no. Don't open that door. Or yeah. don't, don't look at that. Yeah. And, you know, and people are doing it anyway. And it's horrifying to watch because you have the information that they don't. And it's just like this monster that haunts every corner of the film. And it's just, it's a masterpiece so far. I can't wait to see the rest of it. Yeah, I think we're only about three episodes in, so there's still a, a ways to go on it, but it, it's great so far. Yeah, it's uh, only come, it comes, it's still coming out week to week, so yep. t- tonight is the third episode, and I can't wait. Yeah. Anything else you've been watching lately, Pete? Not a lot. I've been I've been writing lately, not, lately, not watching, so it's mainly Chernobyl, and, you know, I just finished with, you know, the big series that there was a finale of last night, and that's over and moving on, and yeah. Okay. I don't know what's next. I've been working my way through BBC did a list of the top hundred films of the two thousands. And I've kind of been working my way through that, uh, which is a lot of fun. And I, I just recently watched Paul Thomas Anderson's the master. Oh, I haven't seen that one, uh, which is in typical Paul Thomas Anderson fashion is a masterpiece. It's, uh, I can't uh, wait. Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix and Amy Adams. And it's, it's really great. So check that out. That's on Netflix. And I also caught, the Criterion version of Terrence Davies' "The Long Day Closes." Um, Never heard of it. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's kind of a transcendental dream sequency coming of age story about a kid growing up in Liverpool in the '40s or so, and it's um, it's really good. So that's worth your time to check that out. I had a lot of fun with it, and yeah. uh, one one of my big revelations this year is that my local library has so many great films. Yeah, and they're completely free. And you could put holds on them and go get them anytime you want. It's like the best blockbuster in the world. Yeah, but Netflix. Yeah, but Netflix doesn't have good stuff. That's true. That's it's true. got yeah. great original stuff, but it doesn't yeah. have great films. Yeah. But at my library, I can get Blu-ray Criterion editions of all of these phenomenal movies, and all ones that I've missed. So it's been really good for me to go back and, and check that out. Um, so that that uh, BBC Top 100 list is pretty yeah. interesting. That reminds me. I have one more uh, yeah. thing. I, I just finished watching the uh, masterpiece new adaptation of Les Mis miniseries. Oh, did you? I haven't watched episodes. it. I've never seen a version of Les Mis that I was satisfied by, mm-hmm. and that may, that remains true. Ah. I will, however, say that the first three episodes are excellent, and the acting is good throughout. The production's good throughout. It's just that in the in the second half of the story, uh, I, I feel like they just kind of lose a handle on some things, uh, and it gets kind of frustrating. It's yeah. definitely worth watching. Lily Collins is in it as Fontaine, who we're about to talk about. She's in Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dominic West plays mm-hmm. Valjean, who I was initially really skeptical about, but he is amazing. So definitely worth watching if you're a fan of Les Mis. But you know, just be aware that... I think we're still in search of that great, great adaptation that's not yet happened. Okay, uh, with that out of the way, let's get to Tolkien. 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 I'm Tolkien. keen on Tolkien. What's what's the poetic foot that is uh, double stressed? Spondy. A spondy. So Tolkien. Yeah. We're calling it a spondy. I'm fine with that. <laughs> um, tell Some tell poet me. Is gonna, probably going to write us and tell us how wrong we are. I'm that's sure. Okay. Bring it, bring it on. It's fine. I'm, I got my English degree, you know, 25 years ago, so I'm sure I've forgotten some stuff. So, Tolkien, what'd you think, Pete? Well, I'm excited about this conversation because we haven't talked about it, and I, I don't all. know what you think. I, I will say that I went into the film with low expectations. Like I wasn't, I didn't have a lot riding on it. I kind of 
didn't even really care if it was good or bad. Like, I hoped it would be good. But I liked the trailer, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to give this a fair shake. I think, okay, I said, I think I tweeted when I first came out of the theater that it was about all the right things. Hmm. And that's that's kind of my review. And what I mean by that is that it was aiming at all the right stuff. I don't think it always hit it. And I know the script is shaky. Like, there's some there's some fundamental problems with the film in a lot of ways. But what I really enjoyed about it was it, it it was trying to be about the things that I really cared about. And so in the end, I was able to forgive it for some of its flaws uh, because it's a beautiful film. It's well acted. And it's got what's the old saying about a great film or, or a good film has like three great scenes and no bad ones. Mm-hmm. I think this film probably has two or three great scenes and a few bad ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those few great scenes are, were definitely enough to save it for me. Yeah, like I'm on board with that. And Now, I, I went into this thing. Uh, this is where you might want to revoke my rabbit room credentials. I, I don't really know that much about Tolkien's life. I don't I, either. I never read a biography. So I didn't have any kind of expectations about what should be covered and what shouldn't be covered. Yeah. Which is good, I think, because I also don't know what they got wrong. And I think it I think it does a good job of doing what I feel like a biopic should, and it drives me to want to learn more about right. its subject. Right. Um I kinda loved this movie. I saw it with my twelve year old son. So he he and I saw it together. And we we had a, a kind of a similar experience with it, which is we were both just enchanted by it. Um, like you said, it's about the right thing. So it's a it feels like it's on one hand it's got this like. Um, so what are the right things? We should probably talk about that. So so on one hand you've got the the sort of dead poet society uh, group of young men who are in search of great art and so they're spurring each other on to these great works of creation whether it's music or poetry or or literature or whatever. Can I say something about that? Please. Or I don't want to derail your train. No, 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 go ahead. Well, so you're right. There are some definite similarities there. The difference though is in in Dead Poet Society, these kids and their fascination with art and poetry and all this was kind of a form of rebellion. And what I love is that in Tolkien, it's not about rebellion. It's about embracing the idea that these beautiful things that we create can change the world. Yes. So I feel like Tolkien's or Tolkien's take on that idea of a society of literary kind of lovers is much bigger than than anything that uh, the Dead Poet Society ever had. Yeah, I totally agree. And like, in fact, I think Dead Poet Society is a little bit more about hero worship. So it's yeah. about they they just want to impress Robin Williams' character. And in this, it's just the four the four guys. Yeah, and they're and they just love. They're enchanted by art. Yes, and they also, and I think we'll get to this point a little bit later. But they also love each other. Yeah. Which is, I think, the really defining thing for me for this movie. So when it comes to being about what what is this movie about or what are the right things it's about, one of the things it's about is love. And that manifests in a number of different ways in the film. Yeah, There's romantic love, obviously, between Tolkien and Lil- Lily Collins' character. Uh, Lily Collins, by the way, is a magical fairy creature. Yep. I don't know where they have found this woman, but she, she's amazing. Yeah, she's she's just great. She's delightful and smart and funny, and she she hits she hits all the right notes. And I thought uh, Nicholas Holt, who plays Tolkien, I thought he did as well. Yeah, fantastic. So you were talking about uh, you know it's a, it's a, it's about love in different forms. Uh, some of those being the love between 
fellows. Not, I don't mean just men, but I mean people who are companions. But it's also about you know romantic love. And one of my very favorite things about the film is that my wife actually pointed this out. I'll give her credit. Is that in a lot of romance and film, you end up with a relationship that's only built on the fact that two people are attracted to one another, or uh, they kind of like just like each other. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this, their their romance and their relationship is built on much deeper stuff. It's built on their love of things and how they interact and the fact that they they share this beloved art between them. And so then when it gets to this moment in the movie when Tolkien is Tolkien, I'm never going to get that right. When he's uh, declaring his love uh, to the Edith character, um, he lists all these qualities that he loves about her, yep. and he never says she's beautiful. Yep. <laughs> it's all about you're smart, you're creative, uh, you're passionate. It's all these things, and I was so delighted by it that their their romance was built on like these meaty foundations, and it was just beautiful, and it's something we see so rarely in film these days. That relationship plays out in another interesting way because he's got his three friends in this society and when he tries to bring Edith into that group, the really interesting thing is he doesn't see it coming, but he finds himself jealous of the affection or the attention that she's getting from the other guys. And so he whisks her out of it. And so yeah. Tolkien in the film is trying to like hold in tension his romantic love and his friendship love. And that's one of the things I did like about the film okay talk about that not not necessarily that you know the way you just described it yeah but i was frustrated by the fact that after that scene there's a great scene between uh tolkien and edith in which she talks about how she longs for that sort of fellowship yep. but because she's a woman uh, in another time people like uh the expectations of a woman are that she stay at home and knit and sew and play piano and all this kind of stuff. And she doesn't have access to this kind of artistic, uh, intellectual life that, that Tolkien has access to. And then that never goes anywhere. And I, cause like when that yeah. scene happened, I was like, yes, yes, yes. Like show me what, how this is going to be developed. Yeah. And then it just kind of never did. And I was yeah. really frustrated by that. And that's one of my general criticisms of the film is I feel like while it was about all the right things, it never could decide which one of them it wanted to be most about. And therefore it was only kind of about a lot of things, which was frustrating. Yeah. um, Now now I will say that in that case and and what you're talking about, it's, it's it's entirely possible that they were hamstrung a little bit by history. Right. Okay. But, but what I read from it is that even though she was not permitted in the TCBS society that they had, that I was reading that as Tolkien kind of saying, well, I can give her that in our relationship so that they would be, you know, intellectual equals. Right. And that even though he couldn't take her into, you know, Oxford, maybe that in their own relationship, they could have that vibrant relationship. And that never played out. So it was just Correct. like we got this one little glimpse of this vibrant woman that Edith was. And then we didn't see it anymore. And I, I didn't, well, that's not true. We do see it a little bit, but it wasn't developed in a way yeah. that accept, that satisfied me. You could probably make the case that his relationship with Edith is the second most important relationship that Tolkien has in the film. And my favorite scene in the movie, my favorite, favorite, favorite scene in the movie. It's interesting that you bring up the one where he's telling uh, Edith everything he loves about her because my favorite scene in the movie is at the end. And, you know, 
once again, normal rules here. We're going to spoil some stuff. My favorite scene is when he is, Tolkien is telling Jeffrey's mother yeah. how much he loved her son and why he loved him. And yeah. he starts to talk about how talented he was and how intelligent he was. And that was the scene that brought tears to my eyes because that is a thing that does not happen in modern cinema where two men can love each other right. in a platonic friendship, incredibly healthy, wonderful way like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like one of the themes of the film was uh, the idea that something is not beautiful simply because it's pretty. Right. A thing is beautiful because it means something. Right. And so, you know, that's true in the context of Tolkien's friendship with his friends. Like, it wasn't merely fun or it wasn't merely just uh, beautiful or whatever. It was because it had this deep meaning yeah. that, that developed around the relationship. And he felt the same way about his wife. Like, she was, what was beautiful about her was not her prettiness. What was beautiful about her was her entire being. And then, you know, they have that great conversation about language uh, where Tolkien is expressing that he thinks, you know, the most beautiful uh, words in the language are cellar door. Mm-hmm. And he says it again, it's cellar door, cellar door. If you say it with a British accent, it's even better. Cellar door, cellar door. So anyway, but Edith points out to him, like, you know, that's nice that you think that that's pretty, but it doesn't mean anything. It has to mean something. And so I love the fact that the overarching theme of the movie is Tolkien's kind of gradual realization that all these stories and poems that he loves because they're full of, you know, knights and dragons and all this, they're just kind of pretty until they mean something. And it's his process of going through the war and grief and love and all this stuff that finally infuses those stories with a meaning. And that's where the true beauty of his work comes from. But I don't feel like they tied all those things together. I feel like those beautiful strands were hanging out there, and I was waiting for a moment in the film when all that could be tied together in a way that just landed. And I was frustrated when it really didn't quite. And uh, you know, in a similar way, there's a scene near the end after we see the Battle of the Somme, and uh, Tolkien goes over the top, and he stands in the kind of no man's land, and you see this Sauron-like figure stand, loom up before him, And it's kind of like you get the sense in the film that it's this sort of cathartic image when he's learned something. But I can't articulate what what he learned in that moment. And I feel like that moment should have been like a summation of something in which he has this epiphany. But like I don't think the film and the script writers were smart enough to know exactly what that epiphany was. And that's my frustration. Like So it's about the right things and it's all there, but it didn't quite get put together. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Like, it seemed like they were trying to convey this idea of the the world inside Tolkien's head, that this fantastical fantasy world and reality kind of crossing over, and him. Now, in that particular scene, he's in kind of a fever dream. Nothing is making logical sense anyway. Kind of kind of moment. But so they were trying to say, you know, this is where some of this inspiration comes from. This is this is where these creations come from it's not a dragon it's a guy it's this person on a horse and somehow he's translated these things i don't know if i agree with that the way i read that was that you know he's already got all these images and stuff in his head he's a person who's driven by stories and images and things that he loves and uh 
so when he's in the war, like his imagination is so active that, uh, you know, the, it's kind of the way that he sees the world. So he doesn't merely see a flamethrower. He, he sees the flamethrower and the dragon. And it's kind of like, you know, I think partly maybe that's because this, this is the way I see the world as a right. writer, as a storyteller. Like my imagination is turned on all the time. And so, you know, when I'm in, uh, you know, an amazing situation or an amazing environment, it's not merely itself. It's itself plus everything I have loved, you know, and that's yeah. what I got out of those films, which so I feel like it's a little inaccurate when I and I'm not sure this is what you were saying, but I've heard some reviewers say things like, oh, you know, they're just telling us that this is where he got the idea for a dragon. And I'm like, no, the idea for a dragon was already there. Yes. Right. No, I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm with I'm with you on that. That's that's not what I was trying to say. I was. OK. I. I I guess what I was trying to say was that what they were it felt like what they were trying to convey was this idea that in his imagination these both of these planes of existence kind of occur at the same time and they right. they were bleeding over into each other maybe just like a visual example of what you're talking about right yeah okay and and I wish like but that was all and here's the problem though that's all it was right like like that idea was never connected with the other themes and motifs in the Correct. story to Correct. mean anything deeper than that. And that's yes. what frustrated me. Yeah, and you see it, you know, you, they kind of, they show it throughout the film. You see it first in the spinning lamp where the dragons are, are on the wall. And, you know, you see the ideas all throughout the movie, but it's in that scene that it's the most dramatic. And I kind of was wishing that they would have committed, like, really committed to it in kind of a yeah like a really tangible like terry gilliam fantastic kind of way yeah like let's I make a stinking fire breathing dragon and put it out there and I, you know budgets and all that i guess right but um and that on it to be honest that could have really easily have come across cheesy or 100 yeah totally totally it just felt like it was somewhere in the middle it, it wasn't committed either way yeah but for me and we'll get to the fixed and post part of this in a second, what we would change. But but for me, the, the two love relationships in particular just worked so well that all of that other stuff is interesting. But like it's it's noise for me. Hmm. And yeah, hmm. go ahead. Well, um, I don't know. If, do we want to move into the fixing it part? <laughs> uh, sure, sure. Because what part of what like Edith the relationship with Edith totally worked to me. Yeah, and uh, and I loved the relationship he had with his you know fellows at school, uh, but, and I think this is again a flaw of the filmmaker and the script. If you'll remember when he's running around in the trenches looking for this guy, mm-hmm. um, and then they go over the top, and uh, there's some moment that occurs when when we recognize that the, this person is dead, and there's a shot of that young man in uniform standing in the psalm yeah just kind of looking at the screen yeah i'm willing to bet that that shot wasn't in the original cut of the movie Hmm. because until that shot i had no idea who he was looking for yes because the editing and the way that the script is built like the the 
three friends were kind of interchangeable to me. Uh, they, yes. They, I knew that the one that had the, the daddy issues, like I, I always recognized him, but the other sure. two were just kind of interchangeable. Yep. And so during none of the flashbacks, did I ever really understand who he was just, who he was looking for? I just, he's looking for a friend. I don't know who it is. And then yep. in that moment when suddenly I need to feel the feels, you know, and know who the kid is, uh, that's when they show me that really quick shot. And I was like, you know what? I bet audiences said, we don't know who that is. And they threw that shot in there to, tr- to tell us. And that's a flaw in the filmmaking. Like I needed it to, I needed to care about that kid from the beginning. And I think there are structural problems too with that, the whole trench sequence and that from the beginning, um, like I feel like, it, okay, if you're going to write a story with this kind of flashback um, nested storytelling structure, um, whenever we flashback uh, or forward or whatever it is, whenever we're we're in the trenches, I need there to be a reason why the scene is shifted back there, and it needs to be more than just a, a, a pass- passage of time in the other part of the story. So, like whenever we go back to the trenches, I need new re- new information revealed. I need the character to develop these things to happen so that I feel that there's a good, compelling reason why my attention is shifted, and the result was because it wasn't doing that is that every time we went back to the trenches i lost the thread of how things were developing in the other story and i felt like they were interruptions so they were they were they were lessening the tension of the story rather than increasing the tension of the story now that sounds really harsh and critical i i still love the movie but i think this is where it really could have been fixed at the script level and the editing level does that make sense? It makes a total sense, and I agree with you. And in fact, I think that if you had just lifted all of those scenes in the trench out, shoved them together, and put yeah. them three quarters of the way through the movie, everything would have been fine. Yeah, I, uh, I, we would I have been see okay. a few flaws with that. I don't know that sure. it totally would have worked. Like, yeah, I would pro- rather probably. rework to it in the structure that it has. But sure. yeah, it just didn't get stitched together in the way that it should have. Yeah, it's it's like a it was a good idea. I just think the the execution was a little bit lacking. But I yeah. I also think that Jeffrey in particular, who's the guy he's looking for, um, we do get some hints. You know, he he is the one that introduces himself to Tolkien first, invites right. them out to tea, but the connection is just not very strong. Right. Um, now here's an interesting question. We walked out of the movie, and Ben, my my son, turned to me and said. Did he actually go over the top of that trench and out into the field? Or was that like a fever dream? And I said, well, I think he did. Uh-huh. But now that you say that, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't so know do you- either. Historically, did he actually go over the top? I'm 90% sure I've read that he did. But did he in the movie? <laughs> like, oh. oh, yeah. So, I mean, he, like, you, you see him do it, right? Yeah, yeah. But you also see, as soon as he goes over the top... You, everything changes. You know, he doesn't get shot for one thing, even though everybody around him is dying. And fantasy takes over that scene. And so Ben was asking me, basically, was he just out of it for that whole thing, and he imagined it? Uh, I don't. That's not how I read it at all. I think he went over the top, and we were seeing, you know, like I said, Tolkien's view of the world was infused by his imagination, and I think that's why we experienced that in the way that we did. But uh, I mean, there was like he 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 heard Jeffrey when he went over the top, mm-hmm. and he he wasn't there. And right. We like I, you said, yeah. we saw him, and he wasn't he wasn't really there. Right. And I I I think I attribute that to like you know shell shock and the chaos of war that kind of stuff. But I, I, I just, never once thought, is he actually there? 
because they, they they set it up with the whole trench fever idea you know he's he's passed yeah. out in that that yeah. blood puddle with all those dead bodies and right um, yeah that's a good point yeah it's interesting I, and i don't i don't have the answer to it I, I just thought i thought it was a great i thought it was a really uh prescient question from ben <laughs> yeah that's interesting the uh the other I, I guess my complaint with the movie is the pacing especially at the very beginning the yeah, it was uh, way when, off when he's young it just goes by so fast and it doesn't yeah, the, the first act pacing was really hard yeah yeah um and so i i would love and, and that could be a runtime issue you know they needed it under 100 minutes or whatever and so they had to cut from that section because they felt like it was the least important i honestly think it probably would have been a better film if we just got rid of the kids yeah maybe um maybe. now the kid that played tolkien was fantastic he was great um so I really enjoyed watching him, but I think it just confused the issue because, like I said, I had trouble tracking who everybody was. Yeah. And when I have to switch actors midstream, that's not making it any easier. So I think you probably could have had a more compelling film just in his college years and developing those themes. In, in fact, to that to that point, the, the actress that plays Ed, young Edith, yeah, when it switches from young Edith to older Edith... It uh-huh. took me a good 10 minutes to figure out that it was the same character. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, they didn't look anything like. Right. And Lily Collins looks so young. Yes. Like, it's almost like, why do we need a different actress? Yes. Yeah. What, yeah. What's, your, what's your take on how the movie treats religion? Okay. This, is, I, this irritates the tar out of me. <laughs> I, I see a lot of people out there complaining and fuming that the movie has whitewashed or eliminated Tolkien's faith or, or this, that, or the other thing, claiming that the film uh, or Hollywood has an agenda, and that agenda, agenda <laughs> is to get rid of Christianity. And I'm just like, what are you people talking about? Yep. Like, one, the, the way that his faith has worked into the film is wonderfully subtle. Like, could there have been more? Sure. Yeah. But, like, that's not what the movie is about. And two, it's not that Hollywood has an agenda. It's that you people have an agenda that you aren't seeing put forward. Right. Like the the way that his faith is handled is not downplayed and it's not upplayed. It's there where it needs to be there for the story that it's telling. And I thought it was it was wonderful. I mean, it didn't shy away from things. And there are some serious like the, the in that kind of fever dream moment on the Battle of the Somme, like there's a, a an amazing image of a crucifix out on the battlefield. Yes. Uh, like, I don't mean a cross. I mean, a crucifix with yes. a bloody Christ on it yes. that is unmissable. And like, that's a clear nod to his faith and how he's interpreting all of this, you know, in the context of this suffering. And uh, yeah, I just don't think it's fair at all for people to say that the movie has shortchanged that aspect of him. Yeah, I, I'm with you. And in fact, uh, the 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 priest figure, Father Francis, who's kind of his Tolkien's mentor and guardian, there's some pushback about his character saying that he doesn't represent the faith well, and uh, he's not a strong enough Christian or whatever. And I think it's a bunch of hooey. And in fact, he's not there to represent the faith. He's not. And like the moment. One of the things I love about the movie is the moment where Tolkien has just failed his entrance exam into Oxford because he's so enthralled with Edith. And Father Francis, played by Cole Meany, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation veteran Cole Meany, tells him, you got to get rid of the girl and get into school because I've taken on this responsibility to help guide your life and you're blowing it. Yeah. The crazy thing about that is he's absolutely right. Right. 
Yeah. He's a hundred percent right. And the movie bears it out. Yeah. And so any other movie would have made that guy some like villainous totalitarian, right. like bad guy who just wants, he just wants to be mean to the main character. But this is a guy who cares, who has cared for years about this guy. Right. And he's watching him like, yeah, he's a father figure. He's a father figure and it's beautiful. And he has to play the heavy in that moment, but it's okay because he's earned it. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, I didn't have any problem with it at all. I just, yep. I'm super frustrated. And here, part of it is because, um, like, this is much more my ideal of a faith based film than a lot of the crap that we see. Yes. You know, and, uh, and I feel like when I see these, these Christian websites and Christian reviewers coming out and railing against it, like, I just want to shake them and say, no, like, this is exactly what we need. Like, this is not beating somebody over the head. It's not cheap sentimentalization. It's, uh, it, it's you know, telling the story of a person. Yep. And a person who was a Christian, and that had an effect on their life and their work, yes. But, like, if you wanted to go into this movie and put more faith in it, what would that even look like? Yes. Like, faith is not a thing that you can put up on a camera. Faith is a thing that informs a person's choices, Right. And, and it, so the, the idea that it should have been represented in a more fully bodied way, I just, uh, no, no. <laughs> I mean, yes, there are more things that you could have said. And there's no disputing that. But like not saying them is not a bad thing. You know, this is not revisionist history. This is not turning Tolkien into somebody he wasn't or, or removing his faith from his life. You know, it's just a movie about a man. Yes. Uh, what would we have wanted? Like a the the argument with one of his Oxford professors about um, yeah. whether whether uh, Jesus was a historical figure or not, and right. we get to see Tolkien rail against the academic establishment. Right, right. Now, if it had if it, it had continued into his later life, like I can see where that becomes much more important in his relationship with C.S. Lewis and the Inklings and all that. But that's yep. not what this film is about, yep. right? And uh, yeah, it just it's really frustrating to me to hear the way that the faith-based market has kind of piled on to the film when they really should be celebrating everything that it's done right. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of things that it does right, I want your take on a choice that the movie makes, and I think it's a bold one, which is where it ends, the moment in which it ends, and what is not included in the film. I think you probably know what I mean by that. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought I, I, I was not entirely satisfied with the quick jump to the ending, uh, but the basic idea of how it ended, I was totally on board with. I just wish it had been written and edited in a better way. I think that I went in. I mean, if you had said, "Hey, what's going to be in the movie?" Knowing, and I didn't watch any trailers. I knew very little. So I would have said, well, surely we're going to get some scenes and they're going to be in the Eagle and Child and we're going to get Williams and Lewis. Oh, oh and, right. Okay. Yeah. I've we're going to get take now. Yes. We're going to get those things, those relationships to, to not include maybe his most famous relationships was a bold choice. I don't think it's a bold choice. I think it's a real missed opportunity. I was really frustrated by this because the film is so much about Tolkien's need for fellowship and how that informs who he is and the work that he's doing. And so over the course of the film, he loses his uh, his first fellowship. 
as his friends go, you know, some of them die, some of them uh, go other ways. Uh, and so I thought, what? I thought surely this is where the film is going, up into like just to show the implication that he's going to go on to be a man who creates other fellowships, you know, namely the Inklings. And I don't, I didn't need to see him and C.S. Lewis sitting down to have beer together, but I would have loved to see some indication that uh, what he has learned is that hey, this is something that humans need. And I'm not going to forsake this because I need it. And and I was and he, it even could have been in an epigraph at the end of the film when yep. they just throw some text up and say Tolkien went on to found the Inklings, mm-hmm. and they literally created works of art that changed the world. Yeah, yeah, they because did that's it. what this film was about, right? That's yeah. what they wanted, and yeah. they missed the opportunity. I thought to demonstrate that oh, he did it, you know? Yeah. So they, I was surprised. Yeah, they put a lot of faith in him sitting down and writing you know the first sentence of the hobbit right like that that would in the mind of the viewer cover all of that territory but that's not what the movie was about the movie is right. about fellowship as it says specifically. specifically and so the final note of the film i would think would harken back to that theme of we need fellowship yeah so yeah, it was a little frustrating. I mean, it didn't ruin the movie by any stretch, but uh, I, you know, it was just you know, it's one of those movies where I go and see it, and I, there's so many things that I love about it that I just want to rewind time and get in the room with the scriptwriter and say, yeah. "Hey, let let's fix this." So something yeah. that's a great movie, and that didn't quite happen, which is frustrating. But it also, like when I left the theater, I was so proud of the work that we do in the rabbit room. <laughs> Like I was just, I was like, oh, this is this is why we do what we do. Like this is the thing that gave birth to like this podcast, you know? Yeah. Like the the relationships depicted in that movie are the, you and I talking right now, right here yeah. today, are a direct result of that, and that is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I had the thought, uh, you know, those early scenes of the TCBS sitting around the the tea shop and yeah. uh, you know discussing art and poetry and music and all those things, and I was like. If those guys could be picked up and dropped into a hutch moot <laughs> and see, like, this yeah. is the realization of that. This yeah. is people from all over the world coming together to do the exact same thing you guys are doing. Um, I think they, they would think it was pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I think overall we, we, we really liked it. Um, yeah, it's definitely a thumbs up movie. Like, you know, people will go to Rotten Tomatoes and they see it's got like 50 yeah. percent or so. And like, I absolutely understand that rating. Yep. Uh, and, you know, I don't it's definitely not a rotten movie. It's, no. just, it's, it's a movie that's striving to be excellent and doesn't quite get there. Um, but, man, yeah. it's got noble intentions. And like I said, it's about all the right things. Yeah. So yeah. it does. Yeah. It doesn't quite get to excellent, but it definitely has some excellent moments. Absolutely. So there, the scene at dinner with he between he and Edith is like a masterful <laughs> scene. It's really good. It's a, it's it's really a masterpiece good. of a of a written scene. It's fantastic. And there in the scene with uh, he and his professor, um, where he's learning yep. about the importance of language and story, also yep. f- just fantastic. And you know, there's enough of those moments in there that it it makes movie magic, and it's great. Yeah, and the, and then the other thing I'll say about it is that this is a great movie to watch with your whole family. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, some of the war scenes might be a tiny bit intense, but certainly, like, network TV is way worse. And um, so, like I said, I saw it with my twelve-year-old, and he was the perfect age for this. So, it's it's a rare film that we can find that covers all of these things 
does it really well, and it's a thing that you can sit and watch with your whole family. So uh, I would recommend it for that reason, definitely. Absolutely, yeah. So one more thing before we're done. Yep. I, I, I just realized, you asked me before like what we're watching now, mm-hmm. and just the other day we watched They Shall Not Grow Old. Oh, I haven't uh, seen which it is yet. A, it's a documentary by uh, put together by Peter Jackson. Yeah. And uh, we, I watched it specifically because I had just seen Tolkien, mm. and this is about World War One, and the experiences of soldiers there. And highly recommend it. The whole okay. thing is told in the words and voices of the people who are there. So it's one hundred percent. Every word you hear is somebody's actual memory. Huh. Um, wow. And, uh, and it's all original footage from World War One. That uh, in a very dramatic way, they they not only colorize it, but even more amazingly, they show it at the proper frame rate. Oh, wow. So, you know, when you usually see uh, old black and white, it's kind of like uh, sped up. Mm-hmm. And that's because uh, those ki- those films were made at a, at a different frame rate than we mm-hmm. project now. So the film is not only colorized, but slowed down so that it looks real and uh and you suddenly are like kind of like ushered into the reality of what World War One looks like. And through these people's recollections, it takes you through what those men went through. And it's funny and it's uh, heart heart uh, wrenching and terrifying and just kind of an amazing piece of filmmaking. Hmm. And so it's a really great companion piece to, to watching the Tolkien film because you can kind of watch the Tolkien film and, and get the, the fantasy kind of uh, artistic uh Story that includes World War One, and then you can go see this, which will really uh, reveal the horror that Tolkien really lived through. And it's oh. great. Cool. Highly recommend it. Great. I'll have to check that one out. I haven't seen it. Anything else, Pete? That's it. That's all I got. Go see the Sounds movie. Good. Yep, go see the movie uh, before it leaves theaters. Go see it. Thanks a lot, Pete, and we'll see you all next time. See ya. That's a wrap on this episode of Fixed in Post, the Rabbit Room podcast about movies. Thanks to Pete Peterson and Andrew Osinga for our theme music. We'll see you next time.